0: One day in the 1930s, a federal worker in Houston walked along Bastrop Street toward a small house. Inside was an elderly African-American woman who had survived slavery in Texas. The worker hoped to interview her about what her life was like during that time. The woman, Adeline Marshall, was very old and ailing. As the two sat down to talk, she pointed to her feet, which were wrapped in rags. She told the interviewer that anything else was too painful to wear. Her feet, she said, had been badly damaged by, poisoned by, in her words, the cheap red russet shoes she had been forced to wear as an enslaved child. But she had a lively memory, and she wanted to talk. She said that her owner was a bad man who put her and other children into the field as soon as they could walk. She recalled older enslaved workers being whipped and put in stocks. Those put in stocks were denied food and water until they were near death. She said that for those who did die, quote, They just dug a hole out back of the horse lot and dumped them in and covered the grave up. There wasn't any preaching service or anything. Put the poor slave out of his misery. That's all. This is episode 8 of The Other Side of the Story. I've referred to violence against enslaved Texans a number of times in this podcast. In this episode, we're going to look at laws relating to the infliction of pain On enslaved Texans and what it was like for them to live in such a world. This is a difficult and troubling topic to consider, but one that we must deal with because it recurs throughout the Works Progress Administration interviews of formerly enslaved Texans. It was a fact of life for them. We risk dishonoring their memory if we fail to deal with this topic directly and honestly. This being the case, be advised that this episode contains disturbing material. Let's begin by considering why violence against enslaved people was common in slave societies, such as pre-Civil War Texas. I've touched on a number of reasons in earlier episodes, but a quick recap. As in other areas of the South, Texas slave owners firmly believed that the economy of their state depended on human slavery. Without slavery, they were convinced that their dreams of success could not be achieved. And without paying workers for the strenuous effort involved in raising cotton, they wondered, how could such workers be motivated? For many planters, the answer lay in instilling fear by physical and emotional brutality. This brutality could, they hoped, be used to extract ever more labor out of their workers. Physical abuse would also be used to intimidate the workforce into compliance and in not rebelling or running away. Remember the successful slave revolt in Haiti? Texas slave owners remembered. What kind of legal framework existed for this in Texas? As we discussed in Episode 3, the 1836 Constitution of the Republic of Texas included many provisions designed to protect slavery, but that constitution did not contain any provisions regarding the physical abuse of enslaved people. A law passed four years later, in 1840, addressed this issue, at least somewhat. That law stated that anyone who, quote, shall unreasonably or cruelly treat or otherwise abuse any slave could be punished by a fine. Various laws passed after Texas became a state were similar in nature to this law. So, by the 1840s, there was a law in the books that at least touched on the topic of cruelty. Another law, however, barred black people from testifying in court against white people. Let's stop here and think about where these laws leave us. How would they have worked in practice? Imagine that an enslaved person in Texas has been badly whipped. That person believes that he or she has been treated cruelly under the law, and thus the owner should be fined. This type of case would be similar to an assault case today. A key aspect of proving such a case is witness testimony, or some sort of physical evidence, that an assault had occurred and that the defendant was the person who carried out the assault. Going back to the enslaved person's case, it's entirely possible that physical wounds would have been created by the whipping. That could speak to the question of whether a beating had occurred, and also suggest, depending on the severity of the wounds, that it was cruel under the law. Now consider who would bear witness as to who committed the assault. On a Texas plantation, the person carrying out the beating would most likely be the owner or an overseer. Owners often made sure that other enslaved workers saw such treatment to try to keep everyone else in line. So in many cases, there were quite a few witnesses to the event. But who would bring the charges? The owner obviously had no interest in incriminating himself or any of his employees. That left the victim and the enslaved witnesses. But remember, black people could not testify against white people. This being the case, not many potential criminal prosecutions actually made it to court. It did happen on occasion, but such prosecutions were the exception rather than the rule. In addition, successful prosecutions for murder for, say, whipping an enslaved person to death were exceptionally rare. Among the relatively few prosecutions that did happen, most involved cases where the enslaved person's owner was not the person accused of cruel treatment. Such cases were, presumably, brought out of concern that someone else's property had been damaged. The definition of cruel treatment was eventually refined by the Texas legislature as follows, quote, It is cruel treatment of a slave to inflict an unusual degree of punishment without just provocation, or to torture or to cause unusual pain and suffering to a slave by the use of any means or to subject such slave to punishment so severe as to become injurious to his health, unquote. As we discussed, for enslaved people who were subjected to cruel treatment, Getting a case to court was like threading a needle. Also notice that this statute used the word punishment. This reflects the point of view of the slave owning class that the physical abuse of enslaved people was simply that, punishment. But I'll just put this out there. If the person being beaten is already literally enslaved, is so-called punishment actually something a little more or something worse? What else do we see in this definition? Consider this phrase, quote, or to subject such slave to punishment so severe as to become injurious to his health, unquote. This reflects, certainly at least in part, an economic concern about damage to property. Do you remember what happened to John from episode four? The Texas Supreme Court justices were not troubled by John's distress, but that his disappearance meant that his owner's property rights had been injured. In 1857, the same year that the Texas Supreme Court ruled in John's case, the court handed down a ruling in State versus Stevenson. This was a criminal case in which the victim was an enslaved woman named Melissa. I told you that there weren't a lot of criminal prosecutions like this, but this is one of them. And when I describe Melissa as a victim, that depends on how you view this situation. If you consider that she was a human who suffered an injury giving rise to a criminal case, then she was indeed the victim. But when you change lenses, as is necessary when viewing a slave society, and see her as property, her owner would have been the victim, which reflects the sometimes up-is-down logic of the world enslaved Texans lived in. The defendant, who did not own Melissa, had whipped her, leading to an indictment being brought against him. The trial judge, R.E.B. Baylor, dismissed the prosecution's case on grounds that the state had failed to outline in the indictment which law had been violated. The state responded by appealing to the Texas Supreme Court. The defendant argued on appeal that Baylor's ruling should be upheld on the principle that the act of whipping an enslaved person was not in and of itself a criminal act. The defendant acknowledged that in some circumstances that could be the case, but there was nothing in the indictment that alleged such circumstances. The court rejected this argument, stating, quote, This, however plausible the position on first view, will be found to be predicated on the idea that a slave is property only as a horse or any other domestic animal. The court went on, The principle that the slave has personal rights being established, it is somewhat like an assault and battery upon a child, a ward, or an apprentice. So, we have this ruling declaring that in some circumstances, an enslaved person's humanity must be acknowledged. Does this surprise you? I would suggest that in light of the general state of enslaved persons' rights in pre-war Texas, it is surprising. But I would also suggest that it was a ruling of limited value to enslaved Texans. It was a narrow ruling because Melissa was struck by someone other than her owner. The ruling thus did not threaten slave owners' ability to beat their own workers. And we don't know why the defendant beat Melissa. This is significant because her conduct could have been viewed by the law as justification for a beating. As an enslaved person, she lived her life hemmed in by laws designed to tightly control her behavior. All manner of, quote-unquote, unacceptable conduct could land an enslaved Texan in a zone of legal jeopardy where white Texans could freely and without consequence pummel them into submission. The power to beat enslaved people, or to chastise them, to use the term preferred by slaveholders, was one held by white people throughout the state. During the years of statehood, Texas legislators went to considerable lengths to outline the ways that enslaved people could drift into legally excusable violence. The person who beat Melissa certainly thought that she had drifted into just such a zone. So what was this zone? Any white person who encountered what he or she believed to be insolence from an enslaved person was legally allowed to beat the slave. In the words of the statute, quote, Insulting language or gestures from a slave to a free white person will justify reasonable chastisement, whether such person has lawful control over the slave or not. Think back for a moment to episode four and how differently John had spoken to two white men. The first man, A.W. Hood, helped John get his wagon out of the mud. And the second white man, Henry Hedgepath, was the overseer who threatened to whip John. I bring this up because the exchanges between John and these two men illustrate how an enslaved person in Texas had to daily navigate the perilous terrain of communicating with white people. When Hood, a man who was not a threat to John, suggested that John not take the fence down, John rejected this idea candidly and boldly. He even cussed a little. On the other hand, when the overseer Hedgepeth threatened to whip John, and that he, Hedgepeth, meant what he said, John dialed it down, replying simply, I expect you do, sir, and that's it. He said nothing more to Hedgepeth. John knew the rules. He was aware of the care he had to take in speaking with each white man. He knew he could speak more freely with Hood, but he also understood that if he engaged in, per the law, insulting language or gestures toward Hedgepeth, that would immediately justify the whipping that Hedgepeth had promised and clearly wanted to deliver. John had to think so carefully, on the fly, during an increasingly dangerous situation, He played his hand the best he could have. Let's pause here for a moment. Are you confused about what sort of physical abuse was allowed in a given situation? I'm not through explaining all this, but I want to say that it is confusing. And it will probably continue to be confusing to some extent. Because, let's be honest, the legal system we're talking about was built on might makes right. Sure, Texas had a legal framework of a sort concerning cruel treatment but it seems questionable how effective laws were at reining in cruel treatment. Were such laws even truly intended to be effective? How could they be in a society so profoundly dependent on human slavery? Were they written and offered as evidence to people in non-slave states that Texas slave owners treated their slaves humanely? Remember in episode two when I said we'd be going to an alien world in this podcast because that's what visiting the past is like? We're really hitting on that in this episode because the legal world of slavery in Texas, the real meaning of these laws and court rulings, can be a puzzle, and a frustrating one at that. These are the laws that purportedly protected the property that the entire state's economy was based on. But as I mentioned a moment ago, what really seems to be going on is might makes right. I do what I want with my property even if I destroy it. But, dear listener, we can arrive at some clarity in regard to many of the legal aspects of slavery in Texas. So let's continue to thread our way through this challenging material. Okay, we were talking about the fact that Texas law allowed beatings for what a white person might perceive as insulting conduct. But Texas law also offered a specific list of conduct justifying beatings. So if an enslaved person was found on a white person's property at night, that would justify beating. Or if an enslaved person was found on a white person's property without permission at any time, that's a beating. Or was heard using, quote-unquote, improper language. Or was guilty of rude or unbecoming conduct in the presence of a white woman. Or used insulting or improper gestures toward a white person. Or engaged in any willful act, injurious to the personal property of any white person. Or was found drunk. All were reasons for beatings. On Texas plantations and farms, slaveholders inflicted pain on enslaved people for endless reasons. They could be chastised for anything or nothing at all. When Emma Taylor was interviewed in the 1930s in Tyler, she recalled that when she was a girl, one of the master's children had a corncob doll that she always admired. One day the daughter left the doll under a tree and Taylor started playing with it. When the mistress saw that, Taylor received the worst whipping she ever endured. Not every enslaved Texan was beaten, and it's impossible to know the proportion of slaves who suffered physical abuse. But keep this in mind, every enslaved Texan knew that this sort of treatment was common, and that they might have to face it at any time. They knew that their master could have a change of heart, or bring in a different overseer, or sell them to someone who routinely used the whip. Slave owners who did beat their enslaved workers often made a point of doing so in the presence of other workers. Callie Shepherd of Upshur County was an enslaved child in the years before the Civil War. As she recalled, quote, I've seen them whip the slaves because they told the children to look. Esther Easter of Fannin County also recalled a whipping that she witnessed as a child. That was the only whipping she ever saw and, quote, that was enough. Why did they clearly remember something from so long ago? A whipping was a terrifying, traumatic event to watch. And that, of course, was precisely the point. A whipping was typically a process begun by requiring the enslaved person to remove at least their top. The person might or might not be tied to something, to, say, a tree or a post, or they might be staked to the ground. And then, as Sarah Ashley of San Jacinto County described to her WPA interviewer, The way they whipped the slaves was to strip them off naked and whip them till they made blisters and bust the blisters. Then they took the salt and red pepper and put em in the wounds. After that, they washed and greased em, and put something in them to keep them from bleeding to death. Have you heard the old saying, to rub salt into the wound? In his WPA interview, William Moore recalled his master's love of the whip. Master Tom had been dead a long time now. See, I believe he's in hell. Seemed like that's where he belonged. He just about had to beat somebody every day to satisfy his craving. See, He had this big bull whip and he would stake a slave on the ground and make another slave hold his head down with his mouth in the dirt and whip him till the blood ran out and reddened up on the ground. He'd even sprinkle salt in the cut places. Skin jerked and quivered and the man slobbered and puked. Another enslaved Texan spoke to her interviewer about the helplessness she felt at watching another enslaved person receive a whipping. I seen old master get mad at one slave And he buckled him down across a barrel and whooped him till he cut the blood out of him and then he rubbed salt and pepper in the raw places. I know that don't sound reasonable that a white man in a Christian community would do such a thing, but you can't realize how heartless he was. We dare not tell for we know he'd kill us if we did. You must remember, he owned us, body and soul. And there wasn't anything we could do about it. Many enslaved Texans who spoke with WPA interviewers didn't just watch their fellow workers get whipped. Beatings were something they suffered directly. Andy Anderson, who was enslaved on a Blanco County farm, recalled a beating his owner gave him one day after the wagon Anderson was driving was damaged after hitting a stump. He tied me to the stake. And every half hour for four hours, they laid ten lashes on my back. When they took me loose, I was just about half dead. i lay in the bunk for two days getting over that whipping, getting over it in the body, but not the heart. No, sir, I have that in the heart till this day. You might have read Toni Morrison's novel Beloved, which is based on the true story of an enslaved woman in Georgia who kills her own child rather than allow the child to grow up as an enslaved person. The novel traces the abuse the woman suffered and meditates on the psychological damage caused by having to endure a life of slavery. I thought of Beloved when I read Andy Anderson's testimony and how, decades after slavery ended, his heart still carried the rancid effects of the whipping. Solomon Northrop, the author of 12 Years a Slave, recalled his experience with the whip in Louisiana. Quote, The number of lashes is graduated according to the offense. Twenty-five are deemed a mere brush, inflicted, for instance, when a dry leaf or a piece of a bowl is found in the cotton, or when a branch is broken in the field. Fifty is the ordinary penalty following all the delinquencies of the next higher grade. One hundred is called severe. It is punishment inflicted for the serious offense of standing idle in the field. There was widespread literature in the South, various periodicals that plantation owners read, about how to create the most productive farm. Extracting the most labor from enslaved workers was a frequent topic. This points up that Northrop's testimony can be a bit deceiving in one way. The notion that certain conduct would lead to a particular physical response from an overseer, as if the abuse received by enslaved people were always well thought through assessments of which level of pain would lead to the most efficient extraction of labor. This was not the case in practice. Although the whip was commonly used across the South, its widespread use should not suggest that there was some sort of, dare I say, science to its use. Not all, quote-unquote, punishments involved whippings. As Ida Henry of Harrison County recalled, "...slaves was punished when they didn't do as much work as the overseer wanted them to do. When a slave was hard to catch for punishment, they would make them wear ball and chains." The ball was about the size of the head and made of lead. Enslaved workers fitted with a ball and chain had to drag the weight down the rows as they picked cotton. Another device, the bell rack, was a noisy apparatus designed to hinder runaway attempts. In his WPA interview, Carrie Davenport of Walker County described this device. I never knew of them putting bales on the slaves on our places. But over next to us they did. They had a piece that went around their shoulders and around their necks with pieces up over their heads and hung up the bell on the piece over the head. The rack was an iron rod that was strapped to the shoulder or lower back and neck of an enslaved person and ran upward to a couple of feet or so above the head. A bell was attached to the top and clanged whenever the person moved. It's kind of a difficult thing to imagine, so I suggest you go to a search engine and type bell rack library of congress they have a photo there of a fellow with one on bell racks weren't always used for runaways jw terrell of madisonville was forced to wear one because his owner who was also his father seemed to hate being reminded of his mixed race son's existence my father was my mother's master he was mean to me he made me wear a bell strapped around my shoulder with the bell about three feet from my head in a steel frame This was my punishment for being born into the world, the son of a white man, and my mother a slave. Terrell told his WPA interviewer that he never knew what it was like to lie down in bed and get a good night's sleep until his father died and the rack was removed. Other enslaved people had a buck and gag strapped to their head. John White described it to his WPA interviewer as maybe worse than the whip. He recalled how the gag's iron stick jammed into his mouth, pressing hard against his tongue. The device was secured by a chain around his head. With such a thing strapped to him, there was, in White's words, no drinking, no eating, no talking. The buck and gag and bell rack devices were crafted for slavery, but other, simpler devices had the advantage of being handy. A sample of such instruments used by Texas slave owners to inflict pain ranged from a wooden paddle with nails in it, to clubs, to farm implements, to buckets, to hand saws, to quartz, to firearms, to boards, to stone jars, to sticks, to logs, to switches, to turkey wing fans, to fists, to cooking utensils, to, again, really anything that was handy and could cause pain. The types of pain inflicted also varied widely on Texas farms. Some that Texans endured included being hanged, being shot, being branded, being stabbed in the head with a fork having their fingers cut off, having their heads put in stocks, having dogs set on them, having their ears burned off, having their ears cut off, having their ears grabbed so their heads could be slammed into a wall, and so on. Alan Manning of Coriel County related an incident to his interviewer that highlighted a particular horror faced by enslaved people, the use of dogs. Manning belonged to a Baptist preacher in Mississippi who brought him to Texas. When it was time to leave Mississippi, one of the preacher's enslaved workers, Andy, couldn't be found. When Andy eventually appeared, the preacher, angry at Andy's absence, told him that if he could make it to the big tree down at the gate before the hounds got him, he could stay there and watch everyone else leave for Texas. So Andy, with no other choice, took off. He made it to the tree and got hold of the bottom limb, when the hounds grabbed him and pulled him down. By the time the preacher got there, Andy was rolling on the ground, holding his shirt up around his throat. The preacher pushed the dogs away and proceeded to beat Andy with a cat-o'-nine-tails. Andy was then taken to Texas. The use of dogs to run down enslaved people was common in Texas, as in other southern states. Bert Luster told his interviewer that it, quote, seems like I can hear them hounds barking now. Many white Texans prided themselves on training dogs to track and bring down people. Some profited by charging slave owners for the use of their dogs. Green Cumbie of Rusk County remembered this vividly. There was a white man called Henderson who had 60 bloodhounds and rented them out to run slaves. I well recollect the hounds running through our place one night. The patrollers, they chased me plenty of times, but I was lucky because they never caught me. The patrol system was set up by the Texas legislature in 1846. Under this law, the county courts would appoint a patrol consisting of a captain and five privates for each district or division in their county. The members had the authority to search suspected places for slaves who were off their owner's property without a pass. Lewis Bonner remembered how slave patrols would travel from, quote, plantation to plantation during the nights with dogs, guns, and whips. They would sick the hounds on the slaves, and sometime tear them up before they could get them off him. Let's conclude with a memory that Annie Hawkins shared with her interviewer. Old Master stayed drunk all the time. I reckon that is the reason he was so fetched mean. My, how we hated him. He finally killed himself drinking. And I remember old Mistress called us in to look at him in his coffin. We all marched by him slow like and I just happened to look up and caught my sister's eye and we both just naturally laughed why shouldn't we we was glad he was dead it's a good thing we had our laugh for old mistress took us out and whipped us with a broomstick she didn't make us sorry though Thank you for listening. In the next episode, we'll talk about family, music, and spiritual beliefs. In other words, the ways that enslaved Texans dealt with what we've discussed in this episode. I hope you'll join me next time on the other side of the story.